Hey guys, I'm Valerie. And I'm Jasmine, and this is Crafts, Drafts, and Crime. And today, we are going to be going international, and we are going to be talking about Natasha Kampusch. And the sources for this episode are The Guardian, Natasha Kampusch, the Netflix documentary, All That's Interesting, Sun.co.uk, Wacomo Docs documentary, which is entitled Natasha Kampusch, 10 Years After Her Dramatic Escape, Sudeutsche Zeitung, Der Spielgum Online, and 3,096 Days, which is Natasha Kampusch's book, which I am going to read direct passages from throughout this, and The Insider. I do want to give a couple trigger warnings. We are going to be discussing suicide, sexual assault and rape, disordered eating, and physical violence and abuse. Natasha Kampusch was born on February 17, 1988, in Vienna, Austria, to Brigitte and Ludwig. The couple had been together for a few years before Natasha was born, but Brigitte had two girls, Claudia and Sabina, from a previous marriage. They were 19 and 20 years old when Natasha was born, so very far apart. Brigitte and Ludwig had met at a shop where Brigitte was a seamstress and Ludwig's mother frequently went to. After being introduced, Ludwig frequently accompanied his mother on her visits there. Ludwig and his mother ran a bakery, and when him and Brigitte were together, they opened up a small grocery shop. Ludwig was in charge of the baking and the deliveries, and Brigitte took care of the rest of the shop. Ludwig, though, had a very socially active lifestyle. He frequented bars and would be out so late that he would hardly get any sleep or sometimes wouldn't come home at all before having to start the baking for the day. And this drove a huge wedge between Ludwig and Brigitte, leaving Natasha without much attention. Now, Natasha frequently stayed with her paternal grandmother And she was who she was most comfortable with and the person who showed her the most affection. And as Natasha grew older, though she spent less time with her grandmother, she continued to feel that way. And now Natasha's parents fought so much that Natasha constantly felt like she was in the middle. When her parents split, Natasha was always at bars with her dad when she was with him and she felt more ignored than before. Her mom left for a few nights one time to stick it to Ludwig and Natasha, who was only a kindergartner at the time, so like five years old, she felt completely abandoned and terrified and rejected and she wasn't sure that her mom was going to be coming back. But that's how not concerned about her her parents were. When Ludwig officially moved out, Brigitte wanted Natasha to not be emotional about it. So whenever she would be emotional, her mom made her feel bad about it. And she got so angry that she would want to move out and run away as a kid. It's just terrible. Like, as a parent, your one job is to love and take care of your children. And the fact that you're still sitting there so worried about your significant other. Like, mind you, like, you shouldn't just forget about them. But at the same time, your kids should be your your number one priority and how they're feeling. Because then they feel things like this. And kids don't understand you know, what you're going through as an adult, but at the same time, like, you're supposed to shield your kids from that. Right. I'm not saying that you're not going to have problems, but, like, how about 
giving your daughter some affection that doesn't change her needs. Exactly. Just because you and her uh, other parent aren't getting along doesn't mean that she stops having needs. Exactly. So when Natasha started school, she got bullied. And her mom told her to just, you know, fight back, hit back. So from that early age, she already learned that she couldn't come to her mom for anything. And if she had a problem, she had to fix it herself. And when you're a small child, that's a lot to consider. And it made her want to rebel. And she actually began wetting the bed. And her mother spanked her for it and was mad at her, thinking that she was doing it on purpose. And she asked Natasha, why are you doing this to me all the time? And she would ridicule her. Her mom started regulating how much she drank. That way, she couldn't have to pee, theoretically, throughout the night. And Natasha also began wetting herself sometimes at school. And she was just constantly humiliated and ashamed. In regards to being punished, Natasha said, quote, The disregard I suffered slowly destroyed my self-esteem. When you think of violence perpetrated on children, you picture systematic, heavy blows that result in bodily injuries. I experienced none of that in my childhood. It was rather a mixture of verbal oppression and occasional old-school slaps across the face that showed me that as a child, I was the weaker one. It was not anger or cold calculation that drove my mother to do it, but rather an aggression that flared up shot out of her like a flash and was doused just as quickly. She slapped me when she felt overburdened or when I had done something wrong. She hated it when I whined, asked her questions, or queried any of her explanations. That too earned me another slap. When Natasha's mom or dad felt bad about what they had done, they would then compete to buy her gifts. They both began dating other people, and her mom's boyfriend didn't really care for her, And her dad's girlfriend said to her, quote, now I know why you are so difficult. Your parents don't love you. That's so fucked. Mm. Even if, even if I showed little regard for my child, let somebody else come by and say anything negative to my kid like that. And it would be World War 56 up in here. (laughs) Like, who the hell are you? Uh, The girlfriend. Like, what the fuck? You don't mean anything. Don't you ever talk to my kids like that. Right. And Natasha also felt neglected at school by her teachers. One time she fell on the playground and she hurt her arm and she was brushed brushed off by a teacher. So she just dealt with it. And it wasn't until later on, towards the end of the day, that the teacher realized how bad it was. And at that point, she had to be brought to the hospital because her arm was broken. So, oh my God. Yes. So as a small child, again, Natasha learned, don't make a scene, don't cause trouble. And it was so deep seated in her that she didn't even know how to ask for help, even when she broke her freaking arm. So she began emotionally eating as a way to cope. And when she got chubby, if her mom would make a comment about her weight, she would tell her to not be so sensitive. And she would spend her free time eating and either reading or watching TV by herself. And she remembers watching crime on TV and news of scary things happening, like child prostitution rings and girls being sexually assaulted and murdered. She dreamed of becoming an actress and said of it, quote, 
This fluctuation between attention and neglect in a world of superficial interactions chipped away at my self-esteem. I learned to play act my way to the center of attention and keep myself there for as long as possible. Only nowadays have I begun to understand that this attraction I have for the stage, the dream of acting that I had nurtured from my earliest days, did not come from within me. It was my way of imitating my extrovert parents and a way to survive in a world in which you were either admired or ignored. Natasha had spent the last weekend of February 1998 in Hungary with her dad, where he had a holiday house. He was working on renovations, but it was a dump. And her dad had a lot of friends in that area. So while they were there, she had to tag along to bars and restaurants, bored as usual while everybody drank. They arrived back in Vienna at 8.30 that Sunday, but they were supposed to be home at 7 since it was a school night. When her dad dropped her off, she ran across the courtyard, and when she got to her apartment and she opened up the door, she saw a note from her mom next to the phone in the apartment that said that she was at a movie. So Natasha wrote a note to her that she would wait with the neighbors at their place. When Brigitte got home... Realizing Natasha's dad wasn't with her, she was infuriated. She couldn't believe that late at night, he just let Natasha run across the courtyard alone. Her mom was angry and she took it out on Natasha and told her that she wouldn't be seeing her father anymore. Natasha just dreamed of being an adult and she said of it, quote, The magic date that was to officially mark my independence was drawing closer, just eight more years to go that I would move out and get a job, that I would no longer be dependent on the decisions of grown-ups around me who cared more about their petty quarrels and jealousies than my needs and wants. Just eight more years that I would take advantage of to prepare myself for a life in which I would make the decisions. Natasha had recently convinced her mom that she could walk to school on her own since she had just turned 10. The drive only took five minutes, so the walk was very short. And on the morning of March 2nd, 1998, Natasha was so annoyed with her mom for being mad at her because of her dad that she didn't even tell her goodbye when she left the house to walk to school. As Natasha walked, she began to cry, thinking about running into traffic and getting hit by a car to be taken out of her misery and let her mom realize her mistakes. As she continued to walk, she noticed a delivery van parked on the side of the road. A young man was standing outside of it. Natasha remembers of it, quote, I slowed my pace and stiffened. A fear that I could hardly put my finger on returned instantly, making the hair on the back of my neck stand up and covering my arms with goosebumps. Immediately, I felt the impulse to cross to the other side of the street. A rapid sequence of images and fragments of sentences raced through my head. Don't talk to strange men. Don't climb into strange cars. Abduction. Child molestation. The many horror stories I had heard on the TV about girls being abducted. But if I really wanted to be a grown-up, I couldn't allow myself to give in to my impulse. I had to overcome my fear, and I forced myself to keep walking. What could happen after all, I told myself. The walk to school was my test. I would pass it without deviating. Looking back... I can no longer say why the sight of the delivery van set off alarm bells inside of me. It might have been intuition, although it's likely that any man I had encountered in an unusual situation on the street would have frightened me. Being abducted was, in my childish eyes, something that was a realistic possibility, 
but deep down inside, it was still something that happened only on TV and certainly not in my neighborhood. When I had come within about two meters of the man on the street, he looked me right in the eye. At that moment, my fear vanished. He had blue eyes, and with his almost too long hair, he looked like a university student from one of those old made-for-TV movies from the 1970s. His game seemed strangely empty. This is one poor man, I thought, because he gave me the feeling that he was in need of protection. At that very moment, I felt a desire to help him. That might sound odd, like a child holding tight at all costs to the naive belief that there is good in everyone. But when he looked at me square for the first time that morning, he seemed lost and very vulnerable. Yes, I would pass this test. I would walk by him, giving him the birth the narrow pavement afforded. I did not like bumping into people and wanted to move out of his way far enough so that I could avoid touching him. Then everything happened so fast. That very moment, I lowered my eyes and went to walk past the man. He grabbed me by the waist and threw me through the open door into his delivery van. Everything happened in one fell swoop, as if it had been a choreographed scene, as if we had rehearsed it together. A choreography of terror. Did I scream? I don't think so. And yet everything inside of me was one single scream. It pushed upwards and became lodged far down in my throat. A silent scream as if one of those nightmares had become reality where you try to scream but no sound comes out. Where you try to run but your legs move as if it was trapped in quicksand. Yeah, I hate that feeling. It's the worst. Yes, it is. As Natasha tried to process what was happening, she was instructed to sit down on the floor of the van and not to move. She asked him if he was going to molest her, to which he said no, she was too young, and he said, quote, I'm going to take you to a forest and turn you over to the others. Then I'll be able to wash my hands of this business. I will turn you over and then I'll have nothing more to do with you. We'll never see each other again. And it scared the shit out of her. And she was certain she was going to be in a child pornography ring. When they stopped, he seemed agitated, saying that they weren't there. Natasha thought about all of the crime stories she had heard of and how resisting an attacker had led to some of them being murdered. He said they weren't coming and began to drive in a different direction. He eventually pulled into a garage and told Natasha not to move. He threw a blanket over her and wrapped her up tightly in it so that he could pick her up and easily carry her. He brought her into an underground cellar that was, quote, beneath a trap door in the garage, down some stairs, through a hollowed out concrete wall, hidden on the other side of a small metal hatch, concealed behind a cupboard. It was so clandestine and fortified, it took an hour to get inside. It was five by five meters, bare, soundproofed, windowless, and filled with the constant irritating rattle of a plastic ventilator fan. So th there are pictures of this, but literally when you go into the garage, you know how a lot of people have like cabinets, but they're like cabinets that, you know, you can store stuff in, like people will store tools or people will store whatever in. So he had like a lot of like cabinets along the wall and stuff like that. And it was literally behind one of these cabinets that he had this tiny door leading to how you get to the cellar. It's so creepy because I have a tiny door in my room and it's to my attic and I don't like that. You should burn it. I would love to burn it or, like, just, like, put some wood, nail it to the wall, 
Um, no, but seriously, I think about this and I'm like, wow, that is so hidden that it's horrifying. I would have, like, and that's the thing. You, they do these things where it's like you would have never thought to look there. Right. It wasn't obvious. You wouldn't be able to see it if you just walked into the garage. You would not see it. You'd have to know you were right. looking for something. When Natasha finally felt safe to unravel herself from the blanket, she was greeted by a cold floor and complete darkness, and she was inside of a cellar. When he eventually returned, he put a light bulb in to illuminate the room. There was a pallet bed attached to the wall, which he took down, laminate flooring, a toilet with no lid, and a stainless steel sink. Natasha pleaded with him to let her go, saying she would tell everyone she just ran away. He denied her pleas. He asked her what she needed and told her that he would go get her a mattress. She requested items that, as she recalls, would be things that you would need for a nightstay in a hotel, like a toothbrush, toothpaste, and a hairbrush. He brought her back a thin piece of foam for a mattress, her requested items, and some chocolate-covered biscuits, which actually coincidentally wore her favorite kind of biscuit that she had recently been forbidden from eating because of her weight gain. And she couldn't get herself to eat more than a few nibbles of them. Natasha talks a lot in her book about how her childhood trauma led to her emotional eating and the humiliation and shame that came from that, which led to disordered eating. And these shameful memories are what prevented her from eating those biscuits. So I also just want to take a moment to say it is never appropriate to comment on somebody else's body, weight, or eating. Because people say things like how they did to Natasha all the time. Like, you shouldn't eat that. Right. And it's like, it's just, it's it's rude. It's like asking, like, a woman their age. Like, you, you're never supposed to ask that. I feel like the only people who should get a pass for that are, like, your grandparents. Because they're going to talk shit about you anyways. Like... Like my grandma, um, she'll see us and she'll be like, Oh wow, you're 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 getting bigger <laughs> or oh my god, you look so small now. Yeah, that's the only people that I'm gonna give a pass to. Everybody else don't say anything about my weight or anything pertaining to me like that. Well, I'll let you give your grandparents a pass, but just so people know you don't have to give your family a pass. I don't care who they are. That is Yeah, no, you, you know, don't. like in this situation for her, like hearing so many things like that and having shame associated with food led to Natasha not being able to physically eat something even though it was her favorite yeah no in this time so Natasha asked the man to leave her book bag there because it was her only personal possessions that she had and he became paranoid immediately he accused her of perhaps having like a transmitter or some kind of means of communication and she was like, okay, um, no, like, how would I have a transmitter? What are you talking about? And she realized just how paranoid he was. So he took the bag and he left her alone in the cellar. Natasha found herself clinging to old memories and trying to wrap her head around what was going on. She asked the man that night if he would tuck her in and read her a story from the book in her backpack. And he obliged. It made her feel the slightest bit of comfort but that quickly evaporated when he left her alone in the cellar. As the days went on, she had nothing but her thoughts to keep her company, except for the sparse moments that the man would come into the cellar to bring her something. She remembers of it, quote, The only sound to keep me company was the rattling of the fan that blew air from the attic via the garage into my dungeon through a pipe in the ceiling. 
The noise was pure torture. Day and night, it continued to war throughout the tiny room until it became unreal and shrill, forcing me to press my hands to my ears in despair to black out the noise. When the fan overheated, it began to smell and the blades warped. The scraping noise got slower and a new sound was added. Tock, tock, tock. Interrupted only by the scraping. There were days that the torturous noise filled not only every corner of the room, but every corner of my mind. Even with her tumultuous relationship with her parents, Natasha found herself missing the comfort of them. She worried about them not knowing if she was alive or not and about the stress it was putting on them. She said that she sometimes was more concerned about them than she was about her own fear, which is crazy because she's 10. And they didn't, they never gave her that care. So it just kind of shows you just how the kind of person that she is and how she's learned so much to not care for herself first. Right. It always amazes me how people in this situation can put others' needs and, you know, their their needs in front of their own. Because it's like, we're all in the same situation, but like, you're going to sit there and you're going to try to protect me. Right. Exactly. So the man would ask Natasha what she wanted to eat and bring her what she requested, and she was able to confirm the town that they were in, Strasshof, which isn't far outside of Vienna where she lived, because of a bag of the bakery that he brought to her, and she saw this. So she tried to convince him to spend as much time with her as possible, not because she wanted to be around him, but because the solitary loneliness was making the situation worse for her. The man burned Natasha's shoes that she had gotten for her 10th birthday and her backpack, but gave her the items from her backpack and some fresh clothes. He brought an electric heater into the cellar since it's always cold in there, and Natasha begged him to send a letter to her parents that she wrote to let them know that she was safe, and he told her that he would. He returned, though, the next day with an injured finger, stating that the men the same ones who were supposed to take Natasha in the beginning and that he threatened may still come grab her, took the letter from him and destroyed it. And he tried to make it seem like he was protecting her. Spoiler Mm -hmm. alert, these men do not exist. No, they don't. He brought her a hot plate and had her start cooking her meals on there, like prepackaged canned foods. And he would also bring her food that his mother had prepared or other things that he picked up. Because Natasha was confined to the cellar, she had no idea where the food was coming from or where he got anything. After a few weeks, the man told Natasha that she was being held for ransom and that he had contacted her parents, but they didn't want to free her and they were happy to be rid of her. At first, she didn't believe that. She's like, no, I know my parents love me. And even though they didn't have money, she knew that they would find a way to get it. But it took more of a toll on her every day longer that she was there, not being rescued. And so all she had to do was think to herself, why me? And she blamed herself. And she recalls thinking, quote, I had a very clear picture of what abduction victims looked like. They were blonde girls, small and very thin, nearly transparent, who floated helplessly and angelically through the world. I imagined them as creatures whose hair was so silky that one absolutely had to touch it. Their beauty intoxicated sick men, making them commit crimes of violence just to be near them. I, on the other hand, was dark-haired and felt cloddish and unattractive, and more so than ever on the morning of my abduction. 
I didn't fit my own image of a kidnapped girl. Looking back, I know that this image was skewed. It is the nondescript children with very little self-esteem that criminals choose to prey on. Beauty is not a factor in abduction or sexual violence. Studies have shown that mentally and physically disabled persons, as well as children with few family connections, run a higher risk of falling victim to a criminal. Next in the rankings come children such as I was on that morning in March. I was intimidated, afraid, and just stopped crying. I was insecure walking to school on my own for one of the first times, and my small steps were hesitant. Perhaps you saw that. Perhaps you noticed how worthless I felt and decided spontaneously that day that I was to be his victim. Natasha's mom called the school when Natasha wasn't, uh, wasn't home on time. Discovering she wasn't in school, she called the police. Several volunteers and police searched the surrounding areas for any sign of Natasha. People called in tips, including potential sightings of her, but none of them panned out. On the news, they were able to report that a girl in a red jacket matching her description was pulled into a white van, which a young girl had seen. Police, for whatever reason, did not immediately act on this tip. That was Natasha. On March 18th, police announced that they would be searching the 700 white vans in the surrounding areas matching that description. That would obviously take some time, and they gave everyone a warning. So now people knew that their vans were going to be looked at. It was 35 days after Natasha's abduction that police came to Strasshof to look at the van that belonged to Wolfgang Pricklapil. The van was filled with debris from construction, which he stated was used for some renovations. He had no alibi for the day of the kidnapping. He merely stated that he was home alone all day. He invited police to look inside his home if they chose. If they had, maybe they would have found Natasha, who was being held prisoner right beneath it. But even that would be unlikely because, again, she was hidden in the cellar that was hiding behind a cabinet in the garage. But they talked to him and cleared him. Wolfgang Pricklapil was born on May 14, 1962, making him 36 at the time that he kidnapped Natasha, and he has a very young face. Growing up, his dad was a traveling salesman and on the road a lot, and when he was gone, he cheated on his wife. They stayed together anyways, and Pricklapil's father died when he was 24 years old, and from that point forward, Pricklapil's mother clung to him. He was a communications technician for a while before he became unemployed, and he was collecting unemployment and acting stupid in interviews on purpose so that he could not get jobs but continue to receive money for part of the time that he had Natasha in his captivity. Him and his friend Ernst eventually started renovating flats together. Pricklepill was a meticulous, clean, OCD person. There couldn't be a speck of hair anywhere. He was so meticulous. But everyone around him just thought that he was an average guy. On Easter morning, April 12th, Pricklepill brought Natasha treats for Easter. She felt comforted until he told her that he gave up on the ransom. Instead, he said, quote, 
You've seen my face and you know me already too well. Now I can no longer let you go. I will never take you back to your parents, but I will take care of you here as well as I can. On April 14th, an anonymous tip was called into police. It stated, quote, Regarding the search for a white delivery vehicle with darkened windows in the district of Ganserdorf with regards to the disappearance of Natasha Kampusch, there is a person in Strasshof Nordbahn who could be connected to her disappearance and owns a white delivery van, model Mercedes, with darkened windows. This man is known as a loner who has extreme difficulties relating to his environment and problems dealing with other people. He is said to be living with his mother in Strasshof Nordbahn, Heinstrasse, which is a single-family dwelling, which is fully equipped with an electric alarm system. The man reportedly may have weapons in the house. His white delivery van, model Mercedes, number plate unknown, has often been seen in front of his house at Heinstrasse with completely darkened windows along the sides and in the back. The man was previously employed at Siemens as a communications engineer and may still be working there. It is possible that the man lives in the house with his elderly mother and is said to have a penchant for children with regards to his sexuality. It is unknown whether he has any prior police record in that regard. The man's name was not known to the caller, who only knows him from the neighborhood. The man is approximately 35 years old, has blonde hair, is lanky, and is 175 to 180 centimeters tall. If they ever did anything with that tip, it was a secret, because that tip was a direct description of Pricklapil, the man who had kidnapped Natasha. Natasha had asked Pricklapil for a clock, the kind of clock that ticks for each second. She wanted to be able to feel a connection to the outside world and have some sort of idea of time because she had been trapped in the dark dungeon with no idea of the time of day other than being brought food at which she could assume were normal eating times. The clock reminded her of her grandmother and was proof to her that time wasn't actually standing still. Natasha also drew murals on the wall, including a family tree that she could look at and, and an image of the entryway to her room from her house. She liked to look at it and imagine that at any moment, her mom would come in the door. Eventually, she was given a radio, but Pricklepill had rigged it so that the stations that she could get were all in Czech instead of German, which she couldn't understand. He later gave her a Walkman so that she could listen to some tapes and films to watch on the TV. He also gave her some books, which pleased her the most. But of course, none of that came freely. Pricklepill also installed a timer, which put Natasha in complete darkness at 8 p.m. every night. And then he installed an intercom. Natasha thought it was good, a way to get help from him in case of an emergency. But Pickapil used it to listen to her, to make sure she was behaving, and to see if he really had to come into the dungeon. But that intercom had a button that Natasha began using, one that silenced him as he spoke. It wasn't long until he replaced it with a radio that allowed him to hear at all times what she was doing and interact with her whenever he pleased. She became paranoid that maybe he also had a sort of camera hiding in the cellar too and could see her. Pricklapil's mother began coming to stay every weekend, all weekend, but that just meant that he didn't come into the cellar once while she was there. 
He brought her whatever food he deemed appropriate for the weekend on Friday, and then Natasha would be on her own. One day, Prickletail told Natasha to call him Maestro, which means master. She said of it, quote, I had sometimes walked the attack dogs belonging to my mother's customers. Their owners had impressed upon me never to allow the dogs to have too much leash. They would have, they would have exploited having too much room to move about. I should keep the leash close to the collar to show them at all times that any attempt to escape would be met with resistance, and I was never permitted to show them any fear. If you could do that, the dogs, even in the hands of a child as I was at the time, were tame and submissive. When Pricklepill now stood before me, I resolved not to allow myself to be intimidated by the frightening situation and keep the leash close to the collar. I'm not going to do that. I told him to his face in a firm voice. He opened his eyes wide in surprise, protested and demanded from me again that I call him Maestro, but he finally dropped the issue. He eventually told Natasha his full name, proof to Natasha that he didn't plan on letting her go. He also told her that he was an Egyptian god. <laughs> As time passed, Natasha felt more and more depressed. She eventually asked Pricklepill to please let her take a hot bath, and that hot bath would require to let her outside of the dungeon. When he agreed, he told her, quote, If you scream, I will have to hurt you. All of the windows and exits have been secured with explosive devices, so if you open a window, you will blow yourself up. As time continued, Proclopil built a bunk bed in the cellar for Natasha and let her paint the walls so that she felt more at home, I guess you could say. It was during the building of the bunk bed that Natasha asked him what he was doing in regards to drilling wood in a specific spot, and he threw the drill at her. She was able to dodge it, but it reminded her that, even though he hadn't physically hurt her up until this point, he had no problem doing it. And it made her fear reignite and her submission grow. After about a year of being held captive, Natasha was occasionally allowed upstairs to use the shower or to watch TV with Pricklepill. He gave her gifts, such as crafting items, to help keep her occupied at her request. He also forbade her from talking about anything prior to her captivity. Her family, school, anything. Natasha remembers, ironically, that though he took away her identity, she developed in some interesting ways. For instance, she no longer wet the bed. And Pricklepill demanded they call her something other than Natasha. And they agreed on Bibiani. And that was her name from that point forward. When Natasha had been in captivity for almost two years, Pricklepill let her outside for the first time, with threats to kill her if she screamed or tried to run. And she got to breathe the fresh air in the garden and see the moonlight for the very first time in a very long time. When Natasha got her first period, Perklapil sort of panicked. He had been super careful to make sure that no evidence of her existed in the home. So when she would come upstairs from the dungeon, he would have her sit on newspapers to ensure that no DNA from her period blood would get on the couch. So basically like a dog. Basically, yeah. And now that she was a woman, she began to do some work for him. Perklopil had Natasha clean and do miscellaneous tasks around the house with his supervision. 
Now, like I mentioned before, he was a clean freak. So when she cleaned, there couldn't be a single piece of lint or a single streak left behind. She had to wear a plastic cap to hold her hair in so that it couldn't fall out and leave her DNA in the house. He also wanted some renovations done in his attic, which Natasha had to help with. At this point in time, Perklapil renovated places for his job. During the renovation, Natasha once handed Perklapil the wrong tool and he threw a sack of cement at her. She says of it, quote, I froze inside. It wasn't so much the pain that shocked me. The sack was heavy and the impact hurt, but I could have handled it. It was the sheer aggression bursting forth from my kidnapper that took my breath away. After all, he was the only person in my life. I was completely dependent on him. That outburst threatened me in an extreme way. I felt like a battered dog who is not allowed to bite the hand that beats him because it is the same hand that feeds him. The only way out I had was to escape into myself. I closed my eyes, blocked everything out, and didn't move a centimeter. The kidnapper's burst of aggression was over as quickly as it had come. He came over to me, shook me, tried to lift my arms and tickle me. And he said, please stop, I'm sorry. And she eventually said, it wasn't really so bad. But from that point forward, he took his aggression out violently at Natasha. The biggest problem was that it was always an outburst, something unexpected until it was actually happening. He began verbally abusing her more frequently, but like many abusive relationships, Perklapil would later bring her sweets that he knew that she liked and make it seem like everything was okay. When Natasha was 15, she hit him back, but it was no use because he could overpower her. But she continued to fight back and she showed him that he wouldn't continue to be violent toward her without retaliation. But she was still tormented in other ways. Though she was growing and going through puberty, Perklapil began rationing her food. When she cooked or when they had food that his mother had cooked, she was allowed one quarter of a portion and he ate three quarters of all of the food. Because of the deprivation, she began having an even harder time mentally and became very physically weak. She got fed up with having her hair put in a cap and decided to chop it all off one day which resulted in her hair being maintained as bald for the next few years. In 2000, Perklapil finally allowed Natasha a radio with Austrian stations because he was no longer worried about her hearing about herself while listening. When Natasha was 14, she slept above ground for the first time since her captivity, but it wasn't a pleasant experience. She was handcuffed to him, with the key too high for her to hack access and the door locked. They slept together in the bed. Though Pricklehill did sexually assault Natasha, she actually doesn't discuss it in her book. She says that she wants that part of her story to remain private. She does mention, though, that he was more interested in cuddling than he was in sex. It was around that point in time that Natasha began feeling suicidal ideation and felt that she would never be free. It wasn't until Prickapil let her spend a few minutes outside with him on occasion, and then let her in the neighbor's pool when they were gone once, that Natasha finally realized that she did still want to live. 
By age 16, Natasha didn't even want to come out of the dungeon. She became increasingly withdrawn and rebellious and depressed. I can only imagine she is six years into being held captive. That's wild. It just shows how strong she is. Like, she lasted six years before she started to become, like, a recluse. But I feel like when she did that, that's her preserving her mental health even more. I agree. And it's, a lot of people would have broke, you know, would have broke a long time ago. Hell, I probably would have broken, been broken a long time ago. I couldn't imagine lasting six years. And then it just, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy. And this six-year point in time is not the end of it. Mm. So just imagining being in that mental state and not even knowing that there's ever going to be an end to this. Right. It's like, this is your new norm, unfortunately. Perkopil wanted nothing more than Natasha to be a slave without a personality. And he wanted to be a ruler. And when he deemed it necessary, he would starve her and put her in the cellar without any light for extended periods of time. Her BMI went down to 14.8, which is an indicator of starvation. And yet he persisted in calling her fat. During serial killer Mark Dutro's trial in 2004, Natasha listened to the radio and heard all of the details. After the trial, a book was mentioned on the radio called Without a Trace, and they spoke of Natasha, a girl who disappeared years ago without any indication of where she went. Her hopelessness overwhelmed her, and she tried to take her own life. She had tried a few things over the years, strangling herself with clothing, slitting her wrists with a sewing needle, and this time, she turned on the hot plate and began burning things that she had in the dungeon. She wanted the smoke to kill her. As she began coughing from the smoke, the will to survive resurfaced. She was able to stop the smoke, and the next day when Perkopil came down to the smoky cellar, he was very angry. He continued to beat Natasha relentlessly. She was covered in welts and bruises and a consistent pain from the abuse. She recorded one week from a, from a diary in her book, and I'm going to read it to you to give you an idea of the kind of abuse that she was receiving. So this is all a direct quote. August 21st, 2005. Morning grumbling. Insults for no reason. Then blows and spanking. Kicks and shoving. Seven blows to the face. A punch to the head. Insults and blows to the face. A punch to the head. Insults and blows. Only breakfast with no cereal. Then darkness down below. No discussion. Stupid manipulative statements. And once scratching my gums with his finger holding and pressing down with my chin and choking my neck. August 22nd, 2005. Punches to the head. August 23rd, 2005. At least 60 blows to the face. 10 to 15 punches to the head, causing severe nausea. Four slaps of his flat, vicious hand to the head. A punch with all his strength to my right ear and jaw. My ear turning blackish. Choking, a hard uppercut making my jaw crunch, 70 blows of his knee, primarily to my tailbone and my rear end, punches to the small of my back and my spine, my ribs in between my breasts, blows of the broom to my left elbow and upper arm, blackish brown bruise, as well as to my left wrist, 
four blows to my eye, making me see blue flashes of light, and much more. Wow. Yeah. August 24th, 2005. Vicious blows with his knee to my stomach and genital area because he wanted me to kneel. And to my lower spinal column as well. Slaps to the face, a vicious punch to my right ear, bluish-black discoloration. Then darkness in the dungeon with no food or air. August 25th, 2005. Punches to my hip bone and my breastbone. Then utterly spiteful insults. Darkness in the dungeon. The whole day, I only had seven raw carrots and a glass of milk. August 26th, 2005. Vicious blows, using his fists to the front side of my upper thigh and my rear end, ankle, as well as ringing slaps to my bottom, back, the side of my thighs, right shoulder, underarms, and bosom, leaving behind red pustules. That is very, very, very intense. That's a lot. She said 70 blows at one time. I don't remember exactly which one it was. But, like, what the fuck? Yeah, that's that's exactly the question I've been asking this entire time. What the fuck? Mm. Why? Why? It's so crazy because when we talk about stuff like this, a lot of times... We don't talk about a lot of physical abuse. Right. A lot of times in kidnapping cases, we end up discussing a lot of sexual abuse, which was prevalent here as well. But the physical and verbal abuse was stronger in this case. And sometimes, like in for the other cases in this season, we haven't really talked about this kind of abuse. In a kidnapping situation. Right, exactly. This just seems so just personal and like it's I don't know, it just see it's it feels like it's like ten times worse. But it's I don't know how to explain it. It's just like mind blowing right now. It is. During this period of time, Pricklepill would also sometimes allow Natasha to come on errand runs with him, threatening to kill her if she made the wrong move or said anything. He also threatened to kill anybody who she attempted to get help from. And she, of course, believed him. How could she not after how he treated her? One time that she was with him, he went through a police checkpoint in the car. And she found herself completely paralyzed, unable to even fathom saying something as the officer looked at Pricklepill's license and registration, and she realized at that point that she no longer had a voice. By the time that she turned 18, Pricklepill knew he had complete control over Natasha. He had taken her enough places where she obeyed him that I guess you could say that he started to trust her a little bit. She said to him one day, quote, You have brought a situation upon us in which only one of us can make it through alive. I'm really grateful to you for not killing me and that you have taken such good care of me. That is very nice of you, but you can't force me to stay with you. I am my own person with my own needs. The situation must come to come to an end. And to her surprise, Pricklepill didn't beat her for saying that. He simply told her he would never let her go. Natasha responded with, quote, 
by now I've tried to kill myself so many times and here I am, the victim. It would actually be much better if you would kill yourself. You won't be able to find any other way out anyway. If you killed yourself, all of these problems would suddenly be gone. Don't worry, if I run away, I'll throw myself in front of a train. I would never put you in any danger. Mm. And Natasha decided from this point that she would run at the next opportunity that she had. Good for her. On August 23rd, 2006, which was Natasha's 3,096th day of imprisonment, it was just three weeks after that conversation. At noon, they went in the garden to pick fruit. When Natasha was finished, Pricklepill put the vacuum cleaner on and had her begin cleaning the inside of the white van, the same one that he had kidnapped her in, because he had sold it and it was going to be being picked up soon. It was parked in the backyard by the garden gate. As she began cleaning, his phone rang. Because of the loud vacuum, he stepped a few feet away, and he seemed excited, so Natasha figured that he was probably talking to somebody who was interested in one of the flats that he had renovated to rent out. Perklapil moved far enough away from Natasha that she was actually out of his sight. And at first, she felt herself paralyzed, but she snapped out of it and she bolted to the gate. Normally, the gate was locked, but it was open. She didn't know where to go, but it didn't matter. So she ran and she didn't turn around. She intended on going towards the train tracks when it occurred to her that she wanted to live. She saw three people coming her way on the street and she ran to them and she begged them to call the police. And the father of the group told her that he didn't have a phone and he couldn't help her. So Natasha ran to a house and she rang a doorbell and nobody answered. So she climbed into another yard where she saw someone through an open window and Natasha knocked on the window and she yelled at her, call the police, please help me. I've been abducted. And the woman looked at her and asked her what the hell she was doing in her garden. And Natasha yelled back, Please call the police for me. Quick, I'm the victim of an abduction. My name is Natasha Kampush. And it was the first time in seven years that she had said her name. The woman told her to wait and to not walk on her lawn. A few minutes later, two police officers came to the house. When they pulled up, they told her to stay there and put her hands up. And she did. And she told them her name and that she was abducted in 1998. They asked her her date of birth and her address, who abducted her and when, and she told them. So the officers radioed to confirm the details of her birth and her address, and they brought her into the police station. And they asked her questions while they waited for a DNA test to come back to prove that she was actually Natasha. Though many people believed her, some people were concerned that she was just disoriented, because it had been eight years since her disappearance. So she's no longer a pudgy 10-year-old child. She was a real thin 18-year-old woman. So obviously she was unrecognizable. When police went to the house, Perklapil was gone. A manhunt had started to a manhunt had started in search for him. Natasha was certain he would kill himself. Natasha was reunited with her family and discovered that her grandmother had passed two years prior. She was kept in a hotel with guards and a police psychologist 
still cut off from the freedom that she had now obtained. And she was right. Perklopil was found after completing suicide by jumping in front of a train. Natasha had to stay in the psychiatric ward at the hospital for a few days as a way to protect her from herself and to help her transition back to eating and not wanting to self-harm. Once on her own, people recommended Natasha to change her name and or go into hiding, which I think is pretty atrocious. And she didn't do that. And unfortunately, she was constantly bothered for a long while. Between people writing her letters and sending her sympathy, people asked for autographs and took her photo, and then worse, people openly insulted her. What? People say that because she did interviews and wrote a book, that now she is suddenly a gold digger. Mm, okay. And then of course, there are those who referred to her in another victimizing way, by saying that she had Stockholm Syndrome which she thinks of as a label that doesn't allow her to judge her own experiences. And she said of it, quote, I find it very natural that you would adapt yourself to identify with your kidnapper, especially if you spend a great deal of time with that person. It's about empathy and communication. Looking for normality within the framework of a crime is not a syndrome. It's a survival strategy. But people get annoyed when I say this. Some say I should be locked up again, that it isn't really special to have been locked up like that, that I like it, and that it was good for me. What the fuck is wrong with people? Right? And then, of course, Natasha also then found out about that anonymous report that would have correctly led them to Perklopil's house, which was conveniently lost and never handed over to the special task force that took over her case. A tip that would have prevented her from spending over eight years in captivity. Natasha now owns the home that she was held prisoner in because she didn't want it to become a tourist type attraction. The house was initially given to her and she later wanted to sell it to a group of refugees, but the idea was rejected by the town and the mayor. She visits the house maybe once every other month when she has something to do for maintenance. As of 2011, the dungeon is now completely filled, presumably with concrete, by the municipality so that you can't access it anymore. She hasn't changed a lot about the house because she uses it to aid her memory so that she can cope with it. Natasha sings and tries not to repress everything because she knows that it isn't healthy. She thinks that therapy is helpful too because, quote, you can look into the many rooms of your consciousness and you can become more and more aware of yourself. She rides horses and does several craft things such as jewelry making and she is open to romantic relationships at this point but she finds that people want to calm her down and has a hard time being involved romantically with anybody. That being said, she is still continuing to work on relationships with her family. And that is the story of Natasha Kampusch. Wow. Can we just say bad bitch alert? Like eight years and you fucking made it out alive? What the fuck? You are amazing. And the fact that people criticize her is literally the most mind-blowing thing in the world to me. It's fucking disgusting and victim blaming on a whole nother level and it pisses me off because it's like you try being fucking locked up for eight fucking years with a sadistic person and 
see how you do. See how your mind is whenever you get the fuck out of there. If you even get out of there. Because not everybody is strong enough to survive something like this. I don't think that I would have been. I don't think I would have been either. I wondered too, and this is maybe bad to say, but, you know, she had such a rough time with her family growing up. I wonder if it sort of prepared her to be able to survive something like this. You know how, you know how people say that, I mean, beyond everything happens for a reason, but like you're not given something that you can't handle. Yeah. Like for her, I, and I know that, I know those quotes are not meant to be used situationally, but I'm going to, (laughs) and I'm going to say like for her, the fact that she had endured so much as a child is terrible but because of that, I think she survived. I'm not saying that she necessarily wouldn't have, but she had right. already learned how to cope with and being with herself mentally. Yeah, I think unfortunately it did help her survive as well. I just, I don't know. Like, I just can't get over the fact that people sit there and are so shitty to her. It's like, what what do you get from that? What do you right. what do you get from that? Do you want to see her? You want to tear somebody down so bad they revert to something that like to their past trauma? That's the that makes you even more of an asshole. Right. Like so fuck you. And so she's done. I watched quite a few interviews with her and she the way that she speaks is so interesting to me because she can talk about it as if it's not her. And it's such a unique perspective. And it's like that in the documentaries as well that, you know, she's talking about it and she's telling you about it. But all of the way that she's speaking is not like filled with all of her emotion. It's just like she has like you can tell that she has dealt with it. Right. And I'm not saying that she's over it. I'm not saying that that's something that you get over. I'm just saying that she handles it in such an elegant way when she talks about it. And it's crazy to me that people have the audacity to insult her on her own experiences yeah that's just fucking ridiculous it is well thank you guys so much for listening you can check out all of our things on our website at craftsdraftsandcrime.com until next time bye bye